You're listening to a People of Note podcast, as heard on Classic 1027. A very good evening to you and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Cock, and this program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. In it, I talk to someone who is a person of note, and we listen to music of their choice. And my guest tonight is Dr. Peter Baker, who's a veterinary surgeon, or in South Africa, a veterinary surgeon, but a veterinary surgeon. And also, he runs the Richmond Book Fair. Is that correct? Yeah. The, Welcome, uh, first of all. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Just just up the road, in fact, from where I work. Yes, we've been uh, running a book fair we call Book Bedonard, which means uh, literally translated in English, crazy about books. And we've been running it um, for 14 years. And this is our uh, 14 years, and this is our 13th festival coming up this year, which, inshallah, we hope will come off at the end of October. Well, I wonder if it will. We wonder if it will. <laughs> but if we don't plan as if it's going to go ahead, yeah. and we find that we, we can roll come 1st of October, uh, we'll be behind the eight ball. So yeah. we're planning as if we're going to carry on. And... Um, if we have to go virtual, we will, uh, but we're making all sorts of contingency plans for outdoor events, social spacing, um, and people wearing masks, and we'll have more small venues, most of them outside. We're a culture of, uh, in the Karoo of stoop sitting, uh, and there's prime real estate during our book fair um, last weekend in October, and so uh, there are going to be lots of events taking place on stoops, the banquet that we have for self-publishers will be held on the street, and uh, it'll be very much an outdoor event, the weather ho- holding good, we, we pray. You're obviously not from South Africa. No. Um, well spotted, I thought you'd say. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> Where are yeah, you from? I, I'm uh, born in Canada, uh, born in Canada, Montreal, and uh, brought up there, went to university there, and came out here in 1975. And what brought you here? Long story. It's, a, I think, a, a love story of Africa. Um, I was brought up in the West Island of Montreal, where my father was a professor of uh, chemistry in a McDonald College, part of McGill University. And um, my mother had been a, a nurse in the Second World War, um, and Canada's main veterans hospital was in our little town, Sananda Bellevue little French town next to the university. And um, I remember going on a, on a Saturday morning with her when she would do volunteer work. And the buildings then were just, this was in the, in the 50s. I would have been maybe, would have been in 1956, maybe 1957. And they were uh, tar paper walled buildings. And uh, they were head, readily, uh, hastily put up after the Second World War for veterans. And I was with my mother, and she introduced me to this old gentleman in a wicker wheelchair, and he had uh, very skinny white hands and big veins on his hands, and and he had a plaid blanket over his knees. And my mother said, uh, Pip, uh, what she used to call me, I'd like you to meet Colonel so-and-so, I don't remember his name, and he fought in the Great Boer War in Africa. And it just... Something had gelled in my mind. I never, we never knew where Africa was or anything, but it, it was in my brain, programmed in something about Africa. 
And uh, through university, I was interested in politics. I followed South African politics. I followed Rhodesian politics and whatnot. And they had a very good veterinary school here at Understeport. Um, and I played uni- university rugby with people from South Africa and Rhodesia. And they told me the lore of Africa, the bush, and how they lived and all this sort of stuff. Um, so it just became an indelible part of my brain uh, going to Africa. And so I applied to do a postgraduate course at Understeport. And I came out here on my way around the world. I was going to do work for six months and then uh, study for six months and then continue on to Pakistan and India and Australia uh, via the Cocos Islands. And it didn't work out that way. <laughs> but you, up, you came here anyway. So I came here. Yeah. I came here and I stayed. You know, I was, Wonderful. Uh, I think for the first 15 years I was going to go back to Canada. Uh, I'd been, I got married after a couple of years to a my beautiful South African wife, um, and we were going to go back, I think, for the first 12, 15 years, and I opened a veterinary clinic, and, and I said, I'll sell it, and we just never did. Anyway, you're happy here. Oh, yes, very much yeah, so. Yeah, I can tell very, by listening to you. Yeah. yeah. And now, uh, obviously, you had a, a journey of music also, because I'm really interested to see that your first choice is uh, a very famous pianist, Glenn Gould, Canadian pianist. Yeah. Uh, that, that's part. Of, I was introduced to music as a in late high school by my cousin Tom Baker, who was a bit of an eccentric. Um, it runs in the family, and he was a m- collector of note, a collector of note, um, and he introduced me to Bach, and I was working as a uh, gardener uh, all the way through university, and I did very well as a gardener. I had lots of people working for me and, and whatnot. So I had a little bit of extra money and I bought a very good sound system. I bought a, an acoustic research sound system. The amplifier was a, a Martin tube ampl- amplifier. And um, he said, you know, now you must start collecting proper music. And because I didn't really have any albums. And so the first thing we went and got was um, he said, you must get the Brandenburg Concertos, you must get the Orchestral Suites, and you must get the Goldberg Variations. And this was all foreign to me. And, and you did. My, and I did. And so your first choice is Glenn Gould playing part of the Goldberg Variations. Glenn Gould playing part of the Goldberg Variations. But I noticed, Peter, my guest is Peter Baker, that you've chosen two different, not, not different, they're both by Glenn Gould, but two different sections. Well, the first one, Glenn, I, I saw Glenn Gould several times in Montreal performing at the cathedral, playing the organ, and at McGill University. And he was a, a very eccentric character. He was, in fact, a very eccentric character. Um, and my cousin uh, had known him from university days long ago. Anyway, um, he was just a bizarre character, and he was known at the time as being one of the great interpreters of, of Bach. And he was eccentric in that he used to always hum. And you, and I, I purposefully picked the first piece because it's a very quiet, reserved piece, the area. And you can hear him humming in the background. And they weren't able to edit it out. I think in, in some more recent editions of that piece that I've seen from late 1980s, 1990s, they've edited it out. 
but it, it, it's it's part of the the piece. Yeah, it's and part it's, of the charm of listening to Glenn Gould. Exactly. All the sort of noises he makes. Exactly. And the second piece, the first uh, variation is is very fast and and high tempo and just a complete difference to the fir- to the to the first piece, the area. Well, I must say I've discovered something. I never knew that he played the organ. No, he did. Yeah, he did. Uh, and I, you've I, heard him. I heard him. Yeah. He, pl- he they had used to have concerts at the Montre- uh, Montreal Anglican Cathedral. I can't remember the name of the uh, church now, but it's right in downtown Montreal on St. Catherine Street. And um, and he did. Yeah. Well, here's the first variation from the Goldberg Variations by Johann Sebastian Bach, played by Glenn Gould. That was the first variation from the Goldberg Variations by Johann Sebastian Bach, played by Glenn Gould. The choice of Peter Baker, who's my guest in People of Note. He's a vet and but also a music lover, as you can hear. And if your brother started with J.S. Bach, what a good brother you had. <laughs> my cousin. But my cousin. Oh, your cousin. He got me yeah. onto him, and he had a very eclectic uh, choice of music. Unfortunately, when you're limited to 15 or 16 pieces of music for a program like this, I think two weeks ago your guest, uh, David, uh, David Rosen, he said he felt intimidated by having to choose only 15 pieces of music that represent you and your life, you, it's very difficult. It's extremely, it's, it's the most stressful thing I've ever had to do. <laughs> but anyway, you came here to South Africa, and, but you've got very wide interests. I see you like traveling, uh, you like 4 by 4s because I saw you arriving in a very big one, um, and you like collecting things, and you like publishing, and you like books. Um, so where do we start with this story? Now, you mentioned the Richmond Book Fair. Perhaps let's start there, and then we can work backwards. You said it's coming up uh, in October. Uh, this is Richmond, not in Natal, but in the Karoo. Yeah, it's Richmond. And, and why Richmond? That's a good question. Um, the intermediate answer is my kids all went to school in Stellenbosch, and Richmond was halfway and it was too far to drive in one go, and we would always go down there with a bucky and a big trailer, a rented trailer, full of stuff for the kids at, at university. Um, they all went to Stellenbosch University and uh, in Afrikaans, and they don't speak much Afrikaans now, unfortunately. Um, and we ended up staying in Richmond, which was halfway, and um, on one of the trips coming back, in fact, uh, it was the weekend of the Argus, and there are no rooms anywhere. We we're going to stay closer to Cape Town uh, and Le Montfontaine, and we're a couple other places uh, on the road. And we ended up going back to Richmond. They had a room for us, and sitting on the stoop the next morning with the owner of this little bed and breakfast called Anra, on the main drag Loop Street, um, with Adam Bazadenhout, who was a uh, retired sheep farmer and a wonderful gentleman and lover of the Karoo. Um, we were sitting on the stoop having coffee, and he, we were just sitting there looking at the day, and I saw a for sale sign on the house next door, Pam Golding, and I said, is that house for sale? And with his typically African or doer sense of humor, he looks at the sign, he says, if it says it's for sale, it's for sale. And it was so cheap, I phoned the estate agent up, it was for less than the price of a second-hand Volkswagen. I bought it, I didn't even look inside. This was obviously some time ago. This was um, almost 20 years ago. And we bought the house, and we ended up moving 
stuff that I collect every weekend driving down there and we had the most marvelous time in this little village the only only english speaking people in the village and um and then within 2 months within 6 months excuse me within 6 months both adam and his wife died of cancer and we sat on the stoop after the second funeral and they were only a month apart um and we said, now what are we going to do? We've got a house in the Karoo. We don't know anybody here. And what are we going to do? Anyway, we did. Um, and I said, I'm going to open a restaurant and show these people how to eat more healthily. And we did. We bought a house just across the road. And we fixed it up, made it into a club, a restaurant uh, called the Richmond Supper Club. And we opened it only when we went down for friends and whatnot. And... The rules in terms of engagement were that these farmers who only ate meat would have to eat chicken, they'd have to eat fish, they'd have to eat green and yellow and red things like vegetables. We don't eat vegetables. They ate vegetables. Uh, and that was my little nick at getting them onto the road to health. And I must say, over the 20 years we've been there, um, they become far more healthy eaters. Their wives are all slim and trim, and the farmers are slimming down quite nicely. Thank you. And just to go back to your children for a moment, why did they all choose to go to Stellenbosch? Was it something they were studying or? No, it was just, it was a good university. Um, I come from, a, came from a university town and my wife and I had been to Stellenbosch many times just doing the wine routes and, and, and seeing what kids went through living in Stellenbosch and, and it was just a good. It appealed to you. It appealed to me in a big way. Yeah. And your next choice of music is Leonard Cohen, So Long, Marianne. Yeah, Leonard Cohen was also a Canadian, um, and uh, he went uh, to McGill University. In fact, he lived on the same street I did for a period of time, uh, Hutchison Street, and um, and he, he was a character we'd see around. I'd, of course, I never met him, unfortunately, but uh, he was a well-known Canadian poet, and in those days, we're going back to the 60s now, he, he was sort of like a Bob Dylan-esque character. He wasn't, um, he hadn't hit the big time like he, you know, did, you know, even Bob Dylan. You know, people knew Bob Dylan, but you had to be in a very cliquish, uh, um, folksy network set up to, 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 know, to, to really acknowledge Bob Dylan in those days. So here it is. So long, Marianne. This is Leonard Cohen. So Long, Marianne by Leonard Cohen, the choice of Peter Baker, who's my guest in People of Note. Now, one of the things about the Karoo, of course, is the beautiful space around it, around any town in the Karoo, just those wide open spaces. And obviously, that's something you enjoy as a sort of safari taker and organizer maybe do you organize safaris as well oh i do uh my wife and i travel every year in fact this year is probably going to be the first year that we haven't gone north we've been to tanzania and kenya and uganda and ethiopia tanzania we've been to i think 20 times by road by road always by road, by road. always by road never never flown there so you know, people say where would you live if you couldn't live in south africa instantly I'd say uh, Tanzania. Secondly, I'd say probably Thailand, but I, I live in Zanzibar. Uh, what, what is it about these places that fascinates you? 
it's you know people say oh do you go to the game reserves and you see the you know the big five and all this sort of stuff and I say no you know I've, I've seen enough of that you can see that anywhere and everywhere we've been to Serengeti a dozen times in Gorongoro Lake Manyara and whatnot it's the people it's the going through villages going to the markets seeing the people um, eating their food buying their stuff talking to them uh, it's the people and the and the and just the open road and the freedom that you have. You've never wanted to go back to Canada. Oh, yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> I go back every year. Yeah. I have a son. My youngest son lives in Canada. He lives in Ottawa. Um, my family, I still have a big family over there, big network. Uh, we come from a very small town outside Montreal called Stanbridge East. Uh, when we went to Richmond, they said, you know, why do you come to such a small dorp in, in the Karua? And I said, my town in Canada is much smaller than yours. We have maybe 98 people, maybe 96, because I think two people died last year. So we're, we come from a very small town that my family have been in since the late 1700s. Um, so I, I miss Canada a lot. Uh, will you go back there ever? Oh, yeah, I do. I go every yeah, no, year. No, you won't go permanently. No, 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 no. no I, never. It's, it's cold enough today. It was <laughs> zero, below zero. And in winter, if you had a day like this in Canada, you'd be outside in a T-shirt thinking how balmy it is. <laughs> but I, I don't want snow. The only place I want ice is in a gin and tonic. Yeah. <laughs> and just let's go back to Richmond. Now, how did this book uh, fair start in Richmond? I, I, after I uh, opened this little restaurant and we had a couple, couple houses, um, I bought another house and made it into a into a gallery, into an, um, a bookshop and an art gallery. And I happened upon a guy who was living in the town doing alterations for somebody, uh, a guy named Daryl Connolly, sadly dead. Um, and he came and ran my little art gallery called uh, Carousing. Um, and you know, one thing developed into another. And there's another chap by the name of John Donaldson, a Joburg boy, who was all, also had a couple bookshops. And then into the mix, there's an Indian guy by the name of Daryl David, doesn't, not very Indian sounding, um, not a Patella or Naidu, but Daryl David. And he was teaching Afrikaans at the University of KZN. So it's a, it's a complete screw up. Um, and he phoned me up one day and he said, my name is Daryl David. He had a sales pitch, a 30-second sales pitch, to try and convince people of what he was doing. And he said, uh, I've heard you've got books down in Richmond, and I'm looking at uh, opening a book town. And I didn't know what a book town was. I'd never heard of it. But the fact that someone was talking about books, which I happened to collect, um, I just said, that's a whale of an idea. And with that, it started. And we got Patrick Mainhard down a couple months later, and he performed in my little restaurant, and we launched uh, Booktown Richmond. So instead of being stuck inside of Richmond, your next choice is by Bob Dylan, stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis <laughs> Blues. Well, we were talking about Bob Dylan earlier, and that was stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues, the choice of Dr. Peter Baker who's a veterinary surgeon and also runs... Uh, do you run it alone, this Richmond Book Fair? How does it work? No, no. We, Daryl, David, and I have been running it for 14, 15 years now. And he 
well, we do it together. He does the organizing of speakers, and I do as well. I get, I'm lucky in my work, I bump into lots of strange and interesting people um, and get to invite them to come down. And I think I invited you, but you were doing something in Bloom, but I'm going to get you there. Um, so we get a, a very good and wide range of, of people speaking on topical issues. Um, and so basically it's he and I, although in the last couple of years we've had a, a local girl uh, who lives in Richmond, Angie Gallagher, and she's helped us put together a lot of our social networking uh, aspects and does projects with the kids. So on the Saturday of our Book Pedonard weekend, we have a it's a it's a, a village festival, and it's dedicated to them. And they put on parades and music and dancing and and the choreography and all this sort of stuff on the main drag, and the place is packed out. It's really it's really a, a remarkable event. Um, I wish we had more sort of local participation, but it's just it, it, that's the way it works. And it happens once a year, always on the same weekend. Always on the last weekend, the last full weekend in the month last weekend which you have a fr- of October of October yeah and the weather's the, the weather's good the weather's usually always good to us and we're lucky we sit out uh, as I say a stoop culture so and where can people find out more about it they can phone me I can give my telephone number is uh, 011-447-2517 or they can look on our website which is www.richmondnc.coza um, richmondnc.coza, not .com. Otherwise, you'll go to Richmond in uh, Virginia, in the United States. Um, and the information is there. And uh, we have a newsletter that comes out uh, once or twice a month called the New Richmond Reader. Um, and if you want to go on our mailing list, you just have to pop me an email address, which is pcbaker at pcbaker.coza, and they'll be put on our mailing list. There you are. There's all the information. We'll give you that again at the end of the program. But just have your paper and pen ready so that you can write them down. I'm talking to Dr. Peter Baker, who is the organizer, one of the organizers of the Richmond. Is it called the Richmond Book Badonet? Is it called or Richmond, is it the Richmond Book, Book, Book Fair? Yeah. Richmond Book Fair, yeah. Richmond Literary Festival. Anything, as long as Anything. people come. As long as <laughs> people come. So, And you said in passing choreography and music. Is that part of the festival as well? That's part of the festival. That's put on by the locals. And they have a local dance group, which if they go onto, if you go onto our website, you'll see there's a uh, quick uh, YouTube of the uh, of the festivities last year, and they're really good. I mean, these are um, in the main little colored kids who are completely sidelined um, by everybody, and it, this is their big big day, and they really rise to the occasion, and and we're so proud of them. They're absolutely fantastic and the talent it's run by two young guys and they teach these little kids dance steps that uh south africa's got talent richmond's got talent good well here comes some more talent this is uh, oscar peterson uh obviously jazz attracts you as well this is c jam blues just tell us about it Oscar Peterson's also from Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually seen him live, which was I've nice. seen him, yeah. and, and that's one of the. Uh, I've met him uh, when I was at McGill. I would walk down to the train, uh, the six o'clock train, um, at um, Windsor Station, and I used to drop into a place uh, called the Black Bottom, 
and it was a jazz club, and they were never open, of course, at 5, 6 in the afternoon. But Oscar Peterson used to play there and used to practice there. And you'd walk into the into the door, and I can't remember what street it was on, of Mountain, Bishop, one of those, I can't remember. But it rained in, down, in the downtown area, and they used to have long black curtains hanging from the ceiling, and uh, you'd walk, wind yourself around. So when you got into the actual stage area, it was completely black, black. Um, and there'd be one little light and this guy sitting at the piano, and it was Oscar Peterson. And they'd give me coffee, and I'd listen to him. And so I met him. And he'd go, hi, you again. Here it comes, Sea Jam Blues, Oscar Peterson. That was Oscar Peterson playing Sea Jam Blues, the choice of Peter Baker, my guest in People of Note. I noticed, uh, talking of books and book fairs, that you're also a writer. Yeah, I like I like to write. I write up, uh, as we mentioned earlier, I've, my wife and I do trips, and we take people with us uh, on some of them, although we actually prefer our own company. We do quite well together. Um, it's, it's, it's a very good way of life. Uh, and I write my trips up every year. And uh, some of them I put in to submit to, you know, these 4x4 magazines and whatnot, um, essay off-road and the like, and they write them up. I look at you know, both the art of travel and, and how you do stuff, but also just my um, notations on the improvement of travel in Africa. Uh, when we started doing safaris over 20 years ago in a Land Rover, when I, uh, we spent more time in the garage than we did on the road sometimes, um, the roads were bad. Crossing a border between Zambia and Tanzania might take 12 hours, and we were the only people to have gone through that border in in three months. They just wanted company. Uh, and changing money was difficult to go into a bank and have to fill in f- 50 forms to change cash into local currency or traveler's checks and whatnot. Now it's a snap. Everything has gotten better. You know, the roads are better. Communications are better. You've got cell phone coverage everywhere, Wi-Fi in most places. Formal accommodation is much better. Uh, border crossings are much better. There's, I've done hundreds of thousands of kilometers through Africa and through every road between here and Nairobi, literally, and I've never paid a bribe, ever. Um, and so there's a lot to say for, you know, people traveling north, and you don't have to rough it. You can stay in really nice B&Bs, nice motels and lodges and whatnot, not expensive, cheap, um, and they're dying for tourists. And so there's a there's a big demand for, you know, people like our age, literally, to get into it. You can get into it just a you don't even need a 4 by 4 um, and you can see all these wonderful sites, waterfalls, rivers, back back roads, uh, mountains, villages, yeah. mountains, yeah. Er, everything. So you feel as though you're riding with the king when you go on these trips. And this is B.B. King and Eric Clapton. That was riding with the king, B.B. King and Eric Clapton. You know, giving uh, one of your guests a... Uh, an ultimatum of you've got 15 songs uh, is very difficult, especially if, if, as your guests all do, they like music. Um, so I've had to combine some, and that was a good example. I like B.B. King. I couldn't have a program without B.B. King, and I couldn't have one without Eric Clapton because I like blues music. So it's just fortunate that they 
have had some good uh, uh, joint ventures, and, and this is one of my favorite. But I see your next choice is the Beatles. So, and I think we're sort of of an age. Mm. So I guess I grew up with the Beatles and Elvis. Uh, so you must have as well. Oh, yeah, very much so. They were, we saw them when they first came on television. But they didn't come from Canada. They didn't come from Canada. <laughs> no, they, they didn't come from Canada. But uh, I remember on, we had a program on television at 8 o'clock on Sunday night called The Ed Sullivan Show. And that was that it. That was that was the program. And Ed Sullivan was a very straight, slick back hair in a suit, um, sort of uh, MC for this program. And he used to wrap his arms up together like this and roll around. And of course, the crowd was all full of young kids and all screaming Beatlemania completely. And uh, and everyone used to take off Ed Sullivan. Everyone used to mimic him, all the comics and whatnot. And, you know, on our, we have a really big shoe. We have a really big shoe. And tonight we have the Beatles, the Beatles. And the Beatles played. And it was, it was incredible. Um, they were... They changed everyone's lives, your life, my yeah, life. Yeah. We, you can't live without the Beatles. You can't have a day that you don't hear them. And it was great music. It is great music. Fantastic I music. I mean, there are a few groups like that that have produced great music. I think of uh, Freddie Mercury and yeah. Queen, the Beatles, Elvis. They were great musicians, yeah. these guys. Great, great musicians. Yeah. And you can, you know, I don't particularly like modern music that we listen to stations play now I, I because there's no melody there's no tune there's not one Beatles song that you can't hum to sing to know some of the words to and and have a melody in your head so your choice is rock and roll music <laughs> that was the Beatles with rock and roll music the choice of Peter Baker my guest in people of note one of the things you mentioned earlier on was uh, your collecting you're obviously a, a hoarder of things, because when you you, you said when you took this house in in Richmond, the first thing you did was to fill it up with stuff from here. With stuff, yeah. Yeah, it it, it runs in the family. My father was a was a scientist and a university professor, but he he came from a farm, and uh, you don't throw things away. You keep stuff because you'll need it sometime. And that was his philosophy, and he used to collect things, uh, threshing machines. He had two dozen these threshing. Are, these are big things, though. These are big things, they're, they're, but they're all, paint, paint, they're all made of wood. And they're for threshing um, beans, dried beans, and you have these handles, and you shake them and between sieves, and the, the husk would go one side, and the beans would, would fall through. And they're all nicely painted. They're all made in the late 1800s and whatnot. And he had dozens of them. And they're still in the barn at home in the farm my, my brother lives in. So I sort of cultivated that love of stuff. And I never I don't have one of anything. I've got one wife, and that's about it. Um, I collect things because I like them and I like having them. When I kick the bucket, I don't know what's going to happen to them. I think some of my kids will collect, have started collecting stuff. Yeah. Did you collect things as a young child as well? I mean, I, you know, I went through stamps, coins, matchbox labels, all that stuff. Did you? Everything. Everything. I, I, everything. I, knickknacks, trinkets, um, Af, you know, uh, antiques. Even when I was a kid, I collected maple syrup buckets and spigots and everything. And now I collect anything and everything from books to houses to um, friends, friends, yeah. paintings, African art, 
And and you're obviously you're a, you enjoy meeting people and talking to people. Uh, so and I mean then it's easy to collect friends and acquaintances all over Africa. So I guess with your travels, you've got people that you see from time to time oh, yeah. as you go past. It's it's true, you know. And and now. Um, the great thing with the internet and with WhatsApp and whatnot, I can keep track of these people. In the past, when we would, my wife and I would drive, for example, into one of the coastal towns in in Tanzania called Mtwara, for example, right on the coast, just north of the Mozambique border, people recognized my vehicle. Even though we might not have been there for two years, maybe three years, they would come out and rec- because they they recognized this truck with a big aerial and and all that sort of stuff and. We kept in touch with these people like that um, just by bumping into them again. But now I c- communicate with probably two dozen people in Zambia, in in northern Mozambique, in Tanzania, Zanzibar. Um, and you can do it. You can send them pictures. You can send them what's up. I send them a picture of the snow in Richmond um, yesterday, the day before. It snowed about four inches. And they couldn't believe this white stuff. What is this white stuff? In darkest Africa. In darkest Africa in Zanzibar. (laughs) Now, you talk about Richmond a lot, and you've got a Richmond song. What is this all about, the Richmond song? The the Richmond song was uh, written by um, uh, Andre Hrubler, and he calls himself, he sings, he works under the name um, Anton G., I'm Andre G, and it was performed by Anton Myberg. Now we had a copy of we had a copy of this song some time ago, um, and it used to be on our website. And don't ask me how, but in changing websites and people doing the website and whatnot, we lost it. And we all knew it was existed. And to try and get hold of the sing- the guy who performed it and the guy who wrote it was a mission. Um, and no one knew where to get hold of him, one of those things. Anyway, somehow I did get hold of him and called him up, and he said, oh, yeah, he'll he'll get it. And I had to remind him 30 times or maybe 20 times, and he sent it to me. So you have that song, the Richmond song, and it's by this Afrikaans pop singer, rock and roll country singer, uh, and he went to Richmond. He played golf on the golf course. He talks about the, the golf course there. And it's a, it's a sand and golf course in the felt. Um, and curiously, the, one of my good friends, actually the son of, of um, Adam Bezadenhout, who was our big friend down there, uh, his son, Johan, my good friend, uh, was South Africa's national amateur golf champion. For a couple of years ago, and uh, so and he played on this, uh, t- and the the greens are are just s- sand with compressed tar on it, and that's where they play golf. And they, he mentions that in the wind pumps and the, it's uh, it's a very spiritual song for people who know the Karoo. Here it is, the Richmond song performed by Andre G. The Richmond song performed by Andre G., the choice of Peter Baker, my guest in People of Note, who, as you gather, has lots to do with Richmond and the book fair there. And I see something else uh, which is very much uh, topical and Karoo-based is anti-fracking. Yeah, it was. It was a, it was a big deal uh, when the uh, Shell and other companies 
we're looking to frack gas in in the Karoo. Um, and it would have, economically, they say it would have revolutionized things. That was a, a subject of great conjecture, and it w- turned out not to be true. Um, the gas layer was a kilometer underground, and because of the ge- ge- uh, the geology of the area and these dikes, it would be very dangerous to frack there. It's not like fracking in the States where they fracked a lot and they've ruined vast areas of, of, of land um, and habitation. And when they started having these open hearings, um, I got involved with a f- chap by the name of Ian Perrin who was from, uh, uh, he's an English guy, retired, uh, living in Nisna. And... We got hold of each other, and he had an co- outfit called Fractual, which was an anti-fracking ener- green energy platform website. And he was, in his retirement, very astute at picking stuff up, information up on, on fracking and the detriments and whatnot. And he coached me on this, and I got to be quite good. I scientific background anyway. And when they had these hearings... We went to, or I went to every one of them, and argued against their experts on why fracking was good, and we said why fracking was bad, and this culminated in uh, in the last conference. They were held in Victoria West in Murraysburg, uh, and finally in in, in uh, Bufford West, and then finally in Graffernet. and our science was just better than theirs. And when we had the conference in Graffernet, they brought out two PhD people, scientists from Holland. And um, Johan Rupert was there. Uh, Skalkberger was there. Um, Skalkberger's father uh, was there. And we argued our case. And, our, and we, de- we beat them. We de- defeated them on the science. And they had no answer. They had no rebuttals. And the the economy of, of the whole project was wrong. The price of gas was such that it wasn't it wasn't warranted. But energy companies don't worry about that so much. They worry about if they're going to go ahead, they want to set the precedent. If we want to dig, we dig. And we prevented them. And they admitted the, the consulting company, Goldren Associates. I bumped into the guy who headed the, their campaign sometime, sometime later, a year later, two years later. Um, at some conference or something, and he said, "Yeah, you beat us. You beat us on the science, and we admit it. And uh, hopefully, it's uh, it's uh, the, it's in the past, and it's not going to happen." Yeah, because it's uh, well, it's very expensive in the states, but it's quite big there. It's it's very big, mm. and they've they've ruined a lot of countryside, and the price of gas now is so cheap that it does it's not it doesn't warrant. Yeah fracking for gas in the Karoo, where it's very unsafe. The, the, the geology is totally different. Um, these, as I say, these dikes we have, which are vertical columns of, of, of hard rock, would, if they frack, which is putting uh, all sorts of chemicals, and they used to tr- try and convince people, well, the chemicals are perfectly safe. You know, because there's, you eat benzene all the time because you have sodium benzoate, and they would, to people who didn't know, Sodium benzoate is a preservative in everything. 
and it does have a benzene ring, but it doesn't mean that benzene is safe. The chemical benzene is very poison. And they were try- and they they'd worked this they'd worked this whole thing that they could uh, bamboozle the public into thinking that the chemicals they were putting in there were perfectly safe because you have them in your soap, you have them in your cornflakes, you have them in your in your yogurt. Well, your next choice is Van Morrison and Brown Eyed Girl. Let's listen to that. That was Brown Eyed Girl by Van Morrison. And you're listening to People of Note on Classic 1027 with me, Richard Koch. My guest tonight is Dr. Peter Baker, who is a veterinary surgeon, but also a collector, a traveler, and someone who runs the book fair in Richmond. He's also a restaurateur, director of the Richmond Community Development Foundation, and anti-fracking campaigns he was, and an anti-poaching campaign. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a, a dilemma for a vet who's you know supposedly uh, trying to help animals. And people always ask a vet, "Do you love animals?" And I say, "No, I don't. I I feel sorry for them. I love my dog and my cat, or my dogs and my cats, and my pets. But I can't feel I can't love everybody's animal. I feel sorry for them. I have empathy for them. I like to fix them and, and make them happy, make the owner happy. Poaching is, is a scourge in Africa. And having traveled in many back areas where there are hunting areas, for example, in, in central Botswana and especially in far northern Mozambique called the Nyasa Reserve, there are vast, vast areas of wilderness. And poaching is taking place at a at a terrible pace, poaching both animals, elephants, um, and and cats, and trees, people cutting trees down. And it's usually, it's, uh, we've seen them. We bumped into logging trucks all, and they're, 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 go- they're going to China. Uh, they've got Chinese text on, written on the, on the trunks. Um, and there's hunting areas there. And the the biggest conservators of game are the hunters. Now that seems to be a paradox. That how can the hunter who wants to shoot something uh, save it? And this is in fact what's happening is that the hunters have a quota. They have whatever the quota is. I don't even want to know. But they have to look after these animals. And they have to also keep the poachers out. And the poachers are a huge threat. And I, we've, my wife and I have traveled through the Nyasa Reserve half a dozen times and stayed with uh, at hunting camps. And the poachers, the anti-poachers, the, the hunters, are the only ones who are hunting the poachers. The government does nothing. In fact, the government probably is working with the poachers, as we, we're all too aware. So it's... Uh, it's I, I don't want to hunt. I don't want to shoot something. I, I, really, I don't want to even see it. Um, I don't even want to think of it. But when you look at the poaching that takes place and what's happening with machine guns and AK-47s and shooting elephants with 150 bullets, it's, it's, it's wrong. And the pe- only people who are going to get those poachers are the professional hunters who are there. Tell us about your next choice, Olympic Reel. Oh, that's a, that's a, a good Acadian music. Uh, Acadia is the are the uh, maritime provinces on the right hand side of Canada on the east on the east coast, uh, New Brunswick, uh, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland, and they are in many respects 
the Karoo people of, of Canada. They're uh, rural, they're out, outlanders. Um, maybe, I don't want to say they're backward, but well, maybe a little bit backward. They're not, um, not au point some of the time, and they have a great sense of humor. And it's a very tough environment. And the history of, of Acadia is that it was a French, French colony uh, settled by the French, as was uh, Quebec, um, Lower Canada, and, um, or Quebec, it wasn't Lower Canada then. Um, and when the, we had the uh, battle at the, on the Plains of Abraham in Quebec City, the French were basically defeated by the English, and the French lost their colony. And Acadia, um, the maritime provinces, uh, became part of Canada as, as, as well. And there were people there who were French-based, and they, uh, they've always been Acadians. And some of those Acadians uh, wanted, didn't want to stay under the British, and they moved south, and they moved to Louisiana, hence Cajun music. And you hear Cajun music from Louisiana, um, which is Acadien, and uh, they speak a French, a patois of French that uh, a French person battles to understand. It's a, it's a different dialect. But the Acadians in, 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 in the maritime provinces are big fiddlers, and they like that sort of music. And this Natalie uh, McMaster is a well-known fiddler, and her cousin, another fiddler, is Ashley McIsaac, who is also a well-known fiddler? I didn't dare play his music because it's a little bit, a little bit garish, and you never know what he's going to come up with. But here's Natalie McMaster with Olympic Reel. That was Olympic Reel performed by Natalie McMaster, and we're going to go straight on to your next piece, which is something which I can't even pronounce. Uh, looks like Faroa Munch Dub Plate. Kenny Rogers and Wycliffe, John. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this, uh, this, um, a lot of my music always has connotations of, you know, these pieces especially, I've chosen them because they have special connotations. And the last one, the Natalie McAllister, um, fiddle music is what we listened to when I traveled around the Maritimes with my family as, and young, as young kids. And we listened to lots of fiddle music, and we went to places where they're playing fiddle music at churches and all over the place. It was lovely. And this Kenny Rogers and Wycliffe Jean song is the song for my boys, my sons, um, and my daughters. Uh, when we're down in our place on the coast, on the north coast, little village called Umtanzini, and we would pack up the bucky, head to the beach, and we would always play this song. It was our Umtanzini beach song. And when I go to Canada, my family plays this for me when I come into the house. That was Kenny Rogers and performed by Wycliffe Jean. I, I can't even pronounce it. It looks like Feroa Monch Dub Plate. Is something, the, like the, something like that. Something like that. Something strange. Now, you talked about your family. You're, you're obviously quite a tight-knit family. Yes, we are. You know, it's... Um, we're a very close-knit family. Uh, I have uh, three brothers in Canada. Uh, uh, my eldest, uh, my younger brother is uh, Phil. Uh, we call him Quill. And he's a big bearded, and he is a baker. 
and he has a bakery. He runs a little country bakery with his daughter, who's a, a pastry chef, and they run a very successful small bakery with a wood fire stove. He gets up at three in the morning, makes a fire, and makes his dough, goes back to bed, lets the dough rise, and comes and works a, a full day baking bread and, and whatnot. And he's, he's, a, he's a well-known baker in the area. Um, my sister Susan is a, a scientist and uh, retired some time ago. They have a lovely house in, in our little village. And um, my next brother is Buddy. He's a, uh, an agricultural engineer, hydro- and he lives on the family farm that's been in our family name, in our family, my, my mother's family, the Cornells, since uh, the early 1800s. And my youngest brother is Jeffrey, and he's a landscape architect, lives and works in Ottawa, and he's been to South Africa many, many times. All my family have been here several times. Have any of your children followed, your own children, followed in your footsteps as a collector or a vet or anything like that? Um, yeah, my one daughter is uh, Allison, who lives just down the road in, in Saxonwold, uh, who's a patent attorney, um, starting her own little practice. Um, she she collects. She collects stuff. Uh, her husband is learning to collect. And... Um, my eldest daughter, who lives in Hootsprate, in a wildlife reserve, uh, is getting on to collecting. She, I bought her a painting some time ago, and she says, no, I like paintings. I, I think I'm going to collect more of these things. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that you grow into. Yep. And then you hold on to them. And that's the title of your next uh, choice, Hold On, with Tom Waits. Tom Waits with Hold On. And we're sort of getting towards the end of the program now, and I see uh, your next choice is Blues Ain't Nothing and Taj Mahal. Yeah, I've, 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 been, I've got every one of Taj Mahal's uh, albums and songs. I've loved him since, uh, since I was in high school, literally, uh, and I got his first LP album, which I still have with me. I brought it down with me. Um, haven't played it for some while, but Taj Mahal mixes sort of African, uh, African American, uh, Mississippi's Delta type music with West Indian music, with West African music. Uh, he mixes with everybody, and he just has a beat and a rhythm and blues music that, for me, is quintessential to anyone who likes blues music. Here it is: blues ain't nothing. Now. It's very interesting. I'm talking to Peter Baker, who's a veterinary surgeon, but also a collector and someone who runs the Richmond Book Fair. And your next choice was an LP, which I first heard at school, of uh, Walter Carlos, as he then was, later Wendy Carlos. Um, And this was uh, sort of switched on Bach. It was Bach played on a Moog synthesizer. And I remember taking it to the director of my school. Uh, I was with a friend who had the LP, and we took it, and he was a very eccentric old guy uh, called Claude Brown, who would not uh, accept anything like that. And we played it for him, and he said, yes, please play it again, he said, because <laughs> it was very catchy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an essential piece of music. It's an essential piece of music. And again, I got this introduced to this by by my cousin. Um, it's sort of jazzed up Bach. Uh, 
there are lots of other editions of of this same music, um, Moog music, but none of them are as crisp and clear and defined as as this as 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 this particular album. And which piece are you choosing? Brandenburg Concerto Number Three in G Major. That was Walter Carlos, or later Wendy Carlos. I think it was Walter Carlos when that was made, uh, playing Bach. I never moon. knew that. Yeah. I never knew that. Oh, really? I, and my mouth is open. Um, yeah. I see pictures of her. Yeah. When I, I never knew that. Yeah. That she was Walter. Started life as Walter. Never knew yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was uh, the Bach-Brandenburg concerto. I'm glad we've come back to Bach because that sort of brings us full circle. And you've got one more piece, but I think before we hear that, I want you to give us these uh, websites again. Um because those are important. Okay, of- I will. I'd just like to just put in a, a quick word um, to all your audience, your very esteemed listeners. We're really, as I say, we're hoping that we're going to have this book fair in October. That's going to be COVID-based. And if we have to do it under restrictions, we'll do it under restrictions. Everyone accepts that. Um, we have in the past been sponsored by the Northern Cape Department of Sports, Arts, and Culture, later the Department of Economic Tourism and Development and Economic Tourism. Um, and they pulled the, the, the plug on us. They've got no money. Um, so we have no money. And so we're really looking for a sponsor to help us. We're not looking for lots of money. It's a very small amount of money. Uh, relative to the to the to the bang for the buck, Booktown Richmond has been going for as long as the Franchuk Book Festival. No one knows that because we we tend to be a little bit more uh, backwater. We we have incredibly good speakers. We've uh, you know uh, uh, Ahmed Kathrat has been there, David Cromer has been there, Ethel Fugard has been there. And Athel Fugard, in fact, performed two plays for us. And, and seeing him walk down the street with his dungarees that were four sizes too big for him, uh, rolled up to almost to his knees, is like seeing William Shakespeare. I mean, he is the second most performed playwright of all time, second only to Shakespeare. And seeing him in Richmond smoking his pipe and drinking a beer, he went on the wagon and stopped smoking for a long while. He said, no, life is too short uh, to stop the pleasures that I really have. And so, and and people appreciated that sort of thing. Um, We've had marvelous uh, crowds of people and we've got a really good good following. We need a sponsor uh, from anybody. Uh, we have a back a buddy, but we'd really like a corporate sponsor if they if they could see fit to come and help us, likes of a Standard Bank or or whatnot. Um, the contact address is www.richmondnc.co.za, NC for Northern Cape. Um, they can phone me at my office number, 011-447-2517, 011-447-2517, or my cell phone, 082-941-1572, uh, or they can email me, uh, pcbaker at pcbaker.coza, P for Peter, C for Charlie, B-A-K-E-R, one word. Um, and uh, we'll put you on our mailing list for our uh bi-monthly newsletter, sometimes tri-monthly. We are happy to take submissions of poetry, short stories, and um, interesting notes from people about just about anything. We're very eclectic and um, like all sorts of contributions.
So there we are. That's it for this Sunday. We're going to play out with some music, but I just want to say thank you to Peter Baker for coming on the program. Thank you to Matabataba Khadebe, who's helped us put this program together. And thank you all at home for listening. I'll be back with you with the full works every weekday evening, so don't forget to listen to that. But we're going to play out with The Sins of Memphisto featuring John Prine. So, until next week, from all of us here at Classic 1027, we wish you a very good night.